going to tell us the truth about what we can expect in this life. And God has made it very clear to us that if you follow after Christ, you are following the more difficult path in life in some respects. You know, coming after the name of Jesus Christ and being called by His name is going to come with challenges. It's going to come with persecutions. It's going to, it's going to come with the difficulties of knowing that you are called for something greater than the people of this world who are simply pursuing the comforts of life. So don't be discouraged, but instead be an encouragement to one another. Lift each other up, remind each other of the amazing grace that we have been exposed to as the children of God. And remember that this God that we serve has not changed his mind. He has not changed his covenant. Those whom he has drawn near to himself, he will sustain forever. And so we are grateful to worship this wonderful God this morning. Each of the 66 books that God has authored in order to provide us with the Old and the New Testaments is crucial to the well-being of his people. Apart from these messages from God to man, all that we know of God would not be only speculative theory, but it would all flow from a perspective, a human perspective, that is tainted by the sin nature that each and every one of us inherits from the first man, Adam. So we are blessed beyond measure that in each of the books of the Bible, God says to us, here I am, this is what I am like, and this is how I intend to draw the rebellious people whom I have made back into not only a right knowledge of me, but a right relationship with me. This holds true of the book of Hosea as well that we have been studying and gaining knowledge from. Since the end of April, we have been working in this Old Testament book of minor prophecy. And so Hosea has given us many noteworthy treasures along the way as we have read through this book. Uh, the metaphor of God's mighty, unwavering love was made clear to us, illustrated in the marriage and the family of the prophet Hosea himself who wrote this book. He married an unfaithful woman, and the consequence of her infidelity against her husband resulted in great strain on their relationship and on the lives of their children. But Hosea did not give up on his wife. Instead, he chose to redeem her from her destructive life at great cost to himself. And we get in Hosea's life a picture of the amazing and relentless God that, uh, love that God has for us, that he will not stop loving his people despite our failures, despite our weakness. We learned in chapter 4, verse 6, that God's people fall apart. They are destroyed for their lack of knowledge. And so their hunger and their thirst will not be quenched so long as they drink from the streams of the world and from their own intellect and logic, rather than the streams of living water that God provides for them. So we learn the importance of seeking God in truth and knowing Him, not taking for granted that He has revealed Himself to us in the pages of His Scripture. We learn in chapter 5 of Hosea that the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel by Assyria, and eventually the destruction of even the southern kingdom at the hands of the Babylonian Empire, were not only known by God prior to their happening, but they were the work of God. They were the chastising hand of a God who will not allow sin to consent, continue to exist amongst his people. The loss of national independence would not only indicate that, God's, uh, that Israel's God was, um, was not only power enough to powerful enough to save his people, but it would indicate rather that his covenant people had dishonored their promises, that they had turned from him, and that Yahweh was going to use these historical military defeats as a part of his plan to reveal their sin and show them their need for 
true repentance. We saw a beautiful glimpse of God's redeeming mercy and grace in the opening part of chapter 6, where the prophet identifies Yahweh as the one who will tear and strike down disobedient Israel. But in the same breath, he identifies God as the only one who will bind them up and heal them again. Yahweh will make right the very wounds that he has commissioned as a punishment for his people and will make his people stronger by the difficulties they've experienced. God's redemptive plan alluded to by the reference of the third day revival that points to Jesus Christ will make this people who are prone to wander truly see the power of God's love for them and will provide the necessary sacrifice that's going to satisfy the demands for justice that God cannot overlook. It will atone for their own sins. In chapter 8, we're reminded that when a people enters into covenant with God, their actions have very real consequences. The northern kingdom had sown the wind. In essence, they, they were constantly doing the kinds of destructive things that are ignorant to the word of God that are going to bring destructive measures upon them. And now they're not to be surprised that they are reaping a whirlwind of consequence and lost blessing. And so the prophet reveals these things to them. He holds them accountable for what they have done. And in chapter 10, Hosea points out that the blessings of God had been great unto his covenant people. They were described as a luxuriant vine. They had been so blessed that their fruit abounded. But the very prosperity that God had given to them, rather than being the evidence of blessing from God that strengthened Israel's faith in Yahweh, became an idol in their hearts. And that idol would become more important to them than the God who provided these gifts in the first place. So seeking more of that prosperity, Israel would make the mistake of turning again and again to any source that would offer them the allure of some kind of earthly blessing. They turned their back on God and sought after idols and sought security in foreign nations that did not honor Yahweh. But every one of those false suitors proved to be hollow, proved to be lying when they promised prosperity. And so the last few chapter plays out like a legal case against the northern kingdom. Yahweh as the prosecuting attorney, the people of the covenant, unwilling to acknowledge their guilt through the even though the facts have been made uh, very clear and these facts condemn them. Even in the midst of this trial, which can only result in the guilt of the northern kingdom being confirmed, God's plan to redeem his people shines through by these illusions that point forward to Jesus Christ. Verse, 13, or verse 14 of chapter 13. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? God has every intention of conquering sin and death one day, but not in the time of Hosea. The people's commitment to rebellion will not keep Yahweh from winning the victory and securing a permanent covenant people for himself, but there must be patience. Here at the conclusion of the prophecy in verses 1 through 3, which we looked at last week, Hosea had issued a call to true repentance. False, empty repentance will not do. This repentance must include a confession built with words that represent a truly contrite heart, a heart that grieves over sin. And while this repentance will not be realized by the northern kingdom, the promise of eventual redemption is written down in the pages of Hosea's prophecy and given for our anticipation. In the last words we looked at last week, in you, Yahweh, the orphan finds mercy, points forward to the fact that this God who is mercifully generous 
sets up the transition of the final section which we will meditate upon today. And though, Abra- though Ephraim finds itself fatherless due to its utter abandonment of the covenant that God had made with them, Yahweh has mercy on such wayward and forsaken orphans such as these. And so at such a time when real repentance comes about, the Lord describes how he will certainly act. And so we are going to finish up Hosea today, reading verses 5 through 9 of chapter 14. This is the word of the Lord. I, says God, will be like the dew to Israel. Or rather, starting in verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His roots, his shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Would you go with me in a word of prayer? I praise you, Lord God, and I ask right now that you would guide us. For we prayed earlier, rejoicing in your immutability and the fact that you never change, but we are also here today confessing that we are not like you, and there is much that needs to change about us. So let the words of this book rest upon our hearts, Lord God. Let it have a revealing power in our soul. If there are ways in which we are neglecting you, Lord God, I pray that you would expose that in us today. I pray, God, that you would give us a desire to be near to you that overrides any other desire that we have in life, that we would not allow any of the distractions of this world to get in the way of our pursuit of the one who has made us who we are. And for those who are here today who have not yet met you or do not yet know you through right covenant, I pray, Lord God, that your redeeming power would open their eyes and that you would save souls even among us this morning. We love you, Lord God, and we know that your word never returns void. So use it to encourage us, to strengthen us, and to bring us to greater maturity today. May you be worshipped in the ways that we obey these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this final stanza of Hosea's prophecy is specific in its emphases. In verses 1 through 3, it reiterates the need for repentance for us. But the prophet doesn't end with that need. That is not his last word. Hosea doesn't conclude by saying, Here, northern kingdom, the ball is in your court now. You know what to do. You just need to, to do it to avoid the consequences of your unfaithfulness. That's not the last word of the book of Hosea. Because the sad reality is that the consequences are sure at this point. The northern kingdom will not come to a point where they are corporately repentant towards God. They have already shown their attitude towards sin. They refuse to acknowledge it. They plead their innocence against the prophet's charges, even though the evidence is clear and their guilt is plain as day. The northern kingdom will fall. Many scholars even theorize that the last few chapters of Hosea's book 
might have been written literally while the Gentile nation of Assyria was camped outside the walls of the capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria. It could be that these final words were just about to come to pass. The northern kingdom will not demonstrate repentance and reconciliation on a national scale during Hosea's day or even for generations after that. But church, this does not mean that God's prophecy through Hosea has failed. Not in the least. Some may think of the prophetic work of God in this way. As though each prophecy is God's best effort to persuade free men to do what He wants them to do. And then all God can do is sit back and hope that people will comply. But God does not try to do anything. The God that we have come to worship is not just giving His best effort. He is a sovereign and holy God, mighty and true. He either does something or He doesn't do something. God's will and God's word is going to accomplish what it sets out to do. In this instance, God had a purpose with this word that he gave through Hosea. And it isn't to turn the hearts of the northern kingdom as a whole to dependence upon Yahweh. That's not what he's seeking to accomplish here. There is an ultimate way in which God will accomplish that loftier goal. But that's not the task before, set before Hosea. Rather, there are three key purposes that Hosea's prophecy sets out to accomplish. The first of which is to expose the faithlessness of the northern kingdom as a whole. And he has surely accomplished that. He has helped this northern kingdom to see what their stubborn, proud eyes refused to see. That they have broken the covenant that they had made with God. That they had ignored the commands of God's arrangement with them. That they had dishonored him by their disobedience and by their dependence upon other lesser powers. Secondly, Hosea's prophecy is meant to show the contrasting faithfulness of God, that even though these people are not holding fast to the promises they made to their God, God is holding fast to His people. And thirdly, Hosea's prophecy is meant to set the stage for the gospel of salvation, which will eventually turn the hearts of men from sinful rebellion against Yahweh, turn them towards faithful devotion to Yahweh. And so this northern kingdom of Israel during this part of history will act as a proof of man's inability to keep the covenant of works. And their failure to do so on a national level is going to result in the northern kingdom dissolving as a people group. The consequences, however, are not absolute, nor do they indicate that God's initiative to be in covenant with Israel is completely null and void. Though the kingdom has crumbled on a national level, we must recognize that there were individuals within the kingdom whose hearts God had kept bound to His. This is a theme we see throughout the Old Testament. That even when Israel seems to have completely fallen apart, that there are always individuals within that larger national subset. There are individuals whom God has kept faithfully to Him. We read about this in part in 2 Kings 19. Through, uh, 30 through 31. In the time of King Hezekiah, we read verse 30, and the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. So how does this small group within the larger group how did they manage to stay near to the Lord? It's not because they were exceptionally faithful 
people. It's because God in his sovereignty has preserved their hearts. He has grabbed hold of them and will not let them go. He has kept for himself a remnant that will remain near to him. And though the northern kingdom dissolves, the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, which 2 Kings just spoke about, is still held together for another 135 years. And God continues to accomplish his will through them. But even that southern kingdom of Judah, as we have learned in this prophecy, will eventually taste the same kind of dissolution that the northern kingdom has earned because of their own stubbornness. They will follow directly in the steps of the northern kingdom because they're human beings, because they are sinful by nature. But there is a fuller, more permanent manifestation of the kingdom that God has in store for them. One that transcends ethnic boundaries. One that has a king who will rule without end, who will never be dethroned or displaced. One that will enjoy a citizenship entirely made up of true believers who are citizens not because of their ethnicity or because of their social upbringing, but because God has put true faith into their hearts. And with a view towards this final iteration of the kingdom, our prophet leaves us with one last taste of that promise. It comes to us in the form of a declaration. A declaration not of what the northern kingdom should do and won't do, but a declaration of what Yahweh will do. I will heal their apostasy, says God. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. I will, I will, I will. Why this emphasis on God's sovereign decree here? Because the northern kingdom has already shown that they won't, they won't, they won't. God must. The northern kingdom won't own their sin. They will not grieve their pride. They won't cast off their false allegiances. They will not forsake their idols. They will not repent of their own accord. Hosea 5.4, you might recall, says, Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them. They can't be faithful, right? They, they know not the Lord. So if there's any hope of redemption, it cannot hang on what the people will do. It must hang on what God will do. He ends this way. Because though the charge to repent has gone out to all, all will reject it unless God himself changes the hearts of men. This is something that is often misunderstood about those who would consider themselves reformed in theology. This idea that people who believe in the sovereignty of God believe that the free offer of grace is not given to all. It is truly given to every human being. The grace of God is for all who will receive it. But universally, every human being, every man, woman, and child upon their own offer of this grace will reject it. Universally, man does not want the grace that God has to give. Every human being feels the sting of sin in their conscience. They know that breaking God's law is serious. The gospel is being broadcast indiscriminately throughout the world. But who says yes to it? No one does apart from the intervention of God. Romans 3, verses 10 through 12 says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. 
No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The writer of the Psalms, whom Paul, the apostle, is quoting here, could not be more clear in their description of the state of fallen man, that we all say no to the grace of God. So if you're a Christian here today, it is against all odds that you are a Christian. You're not a Christian because you heard a better presentation of the gospel. You're not a Christian because you ran into somebody who just happened to be more persuasive than the other pastors out there. If you're a Christian, it's not because you had a better mind that could understand that gospel message which is being broadcast throughout the world better than your neighbor could understand it. That's not why you're a Christian. If you're a Christian today, it's not because you have had enough of sin and have decided to start keeping the law now instead of rejecting it like you did before. If you are a Christian, it's because despite your determination to continue to break God's law, despite your commitment to rejecting the grace of the Savior, God has chosen by His Holy Spirit to do a merciful saving work in you. What He has done has entirely caused the turning around of your heart and mind and life. He ends this gospel or this prophecy this way because God himself is the champion of our salvation and he alone deserves glory for it church and so I'm so thankful that this is where Hosea finishes his message to us what what does Yahweh say he will do here let's look at it in detail he says I will heal and this is a very specific kind of healing that Yahweh promises his people here he's going to heal them of what of their apostasy He's going to heal them of this very natural inclination to turn away from the promises of God, to reject His grace. Apostasy is the terminal breach of covenant. It is a sickness of the relational kind. By their apostasy, Israel has forfeited their belonging in the covenant. They have rejected Yahweh. And so the relationship that God established with them in covenant is now broken. This covenant of works is unraveling before their eyes. How is it overcome? How is this apostasy to be healed? By what means does God make his people right? We might think in the New Testament, the words of Jesus Christ. Look at Mark chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to Jesus' disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Those who are sick need the doctor. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And why does he call them? Because through the blood that he will shed upon the cross, true healing of the heart can come. It is by His atoning work. It is by His work of obedience to the law that He walked in every moment of His life here on earth. When Christ came and took on flesh, God dwelled with man. And as He lived underneath the umbrella of the commands of the law, that umbrella that every human being failed to keep, Christ did not fail. He stood in the truth. He walked in obedience. He lived in love to the Lord. And so when it came time for Him, to do what no one 
saw coming. Jesus was able to give a perfect life as a substitute for all who would trust in him. When he died like a sinner should die on the cross, it wasn't because he was guilty of anything. It was because he had taken our guilt upon his own shoulders and died in the place of God's people. And so the sins that we have committed against God were put to death on Christ. The sins that we should pay for for eternity, he suffered for. And being both God and man, the grave could not contain Christ. And so, yes, on the third day, he did what he had said he would do, and he rose triumphant again. Rose to show us that if our faith is in him, our faith is in something that cannot die and cannot be defeated and cannot change. He is going to. He is going to heal. Remember the dramatic example of Hosea's life and marriage. Hosea does not extend an invitation for Gomer to come back to him. He doesn't say, when you're ready, come back to me. He goes into the places where she's at. She goes to the place of sin and apostasy. She had been cheating upon him. She had abandoned her family. And he goes. She has gotten herself into a situation where she is a slave. And he literally purchases her freedom from her slavery. The sin that had entangled her, he unravels it by his power. He purchases her back. He ransoms his wife from a life of indebtedness to slavery and loves her again. And here is the healing work of God in the life of the believer. Hosea 3, 1 through 3, The Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. And so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. He reestablishes the faithful relationship that had been broken by Israel's sin. Their apostasy had specifically involved unfaithfulness to God via idols, via their dependence upon secular powers. This Yahweh will bring to an end, but he will not heal them only to make them his servants. The relationship he has set them aside for is much more covenantal than that. Just as Hosea purchased Gomer to once again be his wife, so will the Lord heal the apostasy of the people in order to purchase them from their sin and to make them not his slaves, but his bride, his family. So I will heal, says the Lord. And secondly, he says, I will love freely. And while sin reigns, Yahweh cannot love these people freely, for Yahweh hates sin. He must heal first. He must crush sin in order to make an unlovable people holy and lovable again. And while it is the initiative of God that drives this redemption, Israel will not be saved against their will, for in saving them, He will give them a new will, a will that can finally love what is right, a good and a noble will, a will that is no longer dragged down by the federal headship of Adam, the first sinner. The curse of sin is lifted from those who have been redeemed in Christ and they have been given a new representative, a new Adam, Jesus Christ, who stands victorious, keeping the law of God always as our representative. Hosea 2, verses 14 through 17, you might remember, says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. 
He doesn't just buy her back and she comes begrudgingly home. No, he shows her his love. He helps her to understand why she should be committed and devoted to, to him. Verse 15, And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the name of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. He gives us new desires as Christians, friends. He makes us want what is holy. The things that we could not want before are now the things that are dear and precious to us. And the beauty of lifelong sanctification is that he is constantly refining that in you. So that if you look at your life now, Christian, and then you compare it to the life you had 10 years ago, if you've been walking with the Lord, you don't love the same things that you used to love. You care about holier things now. Your life is built upon better stuff. And God has been changing your heart so that your, your life will be, will be postured towards what is righteous and noble and good and not towards the fleeting things of this world. None of us is where we want to be in that regard. We still need to learn to love all the better and all the more nobly, but God is accomplishing that in us. Now Yahweh will love freely, unhindered by sin, which does so much damage to relationships because Christ has done away with that sin. Sinful man is called to repent. Sinful man is called to change their heart. Hosea is not the only prophet to ask for the impossible here. This is, in fact, the consistent theme of the covenant of works. And as you see prophet after prophet urging the people that they are prophesying to to repent, we see a consistent theme that apart from God's intervention, they cannot. Ezekiel 18, 30 through 32 says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart, and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. What's difficult about that charge? Can you give yourself a new heart? Do you have the power to reinvent your spirit? No, we cannot do that for ourselves. He calls us to the impossible to show us that there is only one way these, these things can be accomplished. And it is through his graceful and generous hand. In Deuteronomy 10.1, Circumcise therefore the foreskins of your heart and be no longer stubborn. The Israelites could not be content with an external form of religion. Their soul needed to be subservient to the Lord God. But only God can make that happen in a person. You're going to find similar passages and pleas throughout the major and the minor prophets here. So why, if this charge is so straightforward, do we not see the northern kingdom relent from their idolatry and turn again to their covenant sovereign, um, sovereign God? Because sinful man's incapable of doing so. And of course, Jeremiah, a prophet who preached for 40 years and had almost zero success in seeing people turn back to the Lord, is a voice that we should turn to to understand this. And in chapter 13 of his prophecy, he says in verse 22 through 23, And if you say in your heart, Why have things, things come upon me? It is for the greatness of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted up and you suffer violence. You're shamed. Verse 23, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Rhetorical question. 
What's the answer to that question? No. The next thing he says, then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. What that means is if the leopard can change his spots, then you can do good. You can repent and turn. But the leopard can't change his spots. He cannot make him something other than what he already is. So we cannot do good. For we are not just accustomed to evil, but we are cursed by it. If man were capable of giving themselves a new heart, of turning away from their sin on their own, if we were capable of circumcising our soul, then there would have been no need for Jesus' suffering. The cross would have been nothing more than a cruel display. The crucifixion of God's beloved son would have been an unnecessary dishonor to Jesus. If there was another way, remember Jesus asked in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross, if there be any other way, remove this cup from my lips. He knew that there was no other way. We needed to see that there was no other way. Through the works of the heart, we cannot repent. It is only through the powerful work of Christ and his sovereign power of grace that we could become a new creation in him. Now you might, you might think to yourself, but pastor, I do see some people who are capable of doing that. I do see those who repent and who seek after God. But what you are seeing is the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in them. You are seeing the very hand of God turning a stubborn one around and making a heart of stone into a heart of flesh again. He says, I will heal their apostasy through the redemptive work of Jesus. He says, I will love them freely by his loving self-sacrifice. And think about the verses that we see in the New Testament that, that confirm this. In 1 John 4.10, it says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's not our love for him that causes this change in us. It is his love for us that is willing to even give us a love for him that is not our own. 1 John 4, 19 expands on this. He says, we love because he first loved us. Apart from his initiation, we would not be a loving people. We would follow in the pattern of the world all around us that is constantly self-serving and imploding upon itself. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were the, we were the sick and the destitute, while we were in the, the triage room of the emergency room of the hospital, Christ loved us. He didn't say, go get cleaned up, get your life together. When you finally figured this gospel thing out and you're ready, you come to me. Now He grabbed a hold of us and said, I'm going to love you. I'm going to purchase you out of this life that you lived in before, this life of unfaithfulness, for I am a faithful God. Having been reconciled to the source of life, we see a metaphor of growth and vitality again in these verses in the end of Hosea chapter 14. He says, I will be the dew that sustains agricultural life among you, in a sense. And so the next several verses expand upon this. When God provides what is needed for his people, we will see his covenant people responding appropriately. They will begin to flourish. They will blossom like the lily. In some of my reading, I, I learned that lilies are famous for just popping up in random places. My wife is 
doing some gardening right now. She's doing a faithful job at that, growing some things in the backyard. And we find that a lot of the things that we plant don't do so well, but then these random things just pop up. And there's a, there's a word in that gardening community. They're called volunteers. They just grow randomly, and it's because we're composting. And so some of the food that you compost will have seeds or pieces of fruit in it, and then randomly you'll get a melon just popping up out of your carrot patch. Or, and those things did better for us this season than anything else. And so like, like lilies that just spring up, like beautiful flowers where you don't expect a beautiful flower to sprout up, God will bring life where there is death. He will sustain his people. He will make life come from death. It says that, that his people will take root like the trees of Lebanon. And Lebanon's important to this section because the nation of Lebanon was nearby. And notice, this is probably a little bit of a sting to the hearts of these Israelites who just been told they're wrong for looking outside of, of God's covenant for their strength. They've gone to Assyria. They've gone to Egypt. They've tried to make covenant pacts with other people because they didn't trust Yahweh. And so he says, I'm going to make you like the trees of Lebanon. If this is the language you speak, I'm going to speak your language. Those trees that are famous everywhere for their mighty wood that is so useful for building structures and for, for making strong houses for people in which to live. I'm going to make you like those trees. And those trees are not only going to be good for wood and for structure, but those trees are going to bear fruit. They'll be useful for the provision of the people around them. So shelter and food will be yours because of the life that I give to you in causing you to grow stronger and stronger. He says that their shoots will spread out, sort of like a vine. If you've ever had a grapevine, those things think they own your yard. They grow everywhere. They want to grab onto anything nearby. They get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so this blessed nation, these people who've been redeemed out of death and, and have suddenly taken on life are going to spread throughout the world. And they're going to grab hold of other nations and other peoples. And this gospel is going to have a multiplying effect in the world that is so touched by sin, but is being redeemed by the love of God. They're going to bear fruit like the olive, like the fig or the grape. Fruit so beneficial to the life that feeds upon it. Fruit that finds joy and beauty and savor in the mouth of those who eat it. Of course, the fruit that they will bear will also be instrumental to the multiplication of that plant itself. It will be a blessing to others and a blessing to the vine. Israel, once again, will thrive and produce. And when the Lord God again provides these elements that are essential to his people's needs, true spiritual Israel will no longer foolishly seek that provision from other lesser sources like Egypt or Assyria. Verse 7 includes a minor challenge in the Hebrew where Hosea says, they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. The word there is actually his shadow, which seems to point to Israel's shadow, to the shadow of this vine that God is providing for, that is growing so big. And if that is the case here, it doesn't create a problem really. It just helps us to see a new facet of this, that all the people of the world will be blessed by God's provision to his own people that the world will be a better place because Christianity is in it, because faithful people are loving what is true and what is good and are following after God. And so it talks about this in the New Testament in the parable of the mustard seed, the smallest seed of the field, and yet it creates the largest bush of the field, almost as big as a tree, and then the birds of the air will come and find their nest in it. People will find sanctuary in those who belong to Yahweh. This was a feature of God's original promises made to Abraham and Sarah hundreds of years earlier, and it has surely come to pass today as every tribe, tongue, and nation continues to hear the gospel and see many of their people be transformed by the work 
of this redeeming Lord. What should become clear to the reader of the prophecy here is that God's people are saved, not only to their own personal safety, but they are saved to bear fruit for their Savior. They are saved to fruitfulness. God's people have been saved for the works that God has predestined them to do so that they will not just sit around and be thankful that judgment has been narrowly avoided, but that they might stand in awe of God, that they might have a reverent appreciation for the work that God is doing to transform them. And they might say, here I am, God. Send me to serve you. Let me be obedient to this law and give me the strength to walk in it so that you might be glorified even in my testimony. Both grain and wine represent the new products of this redeemed life. And Hosea speaks of these things in those verses. As Lebanon had grown famous around the region for its cedars and its olives and its wine, so too would the covenant people of God earn a reputation for life and vitality amongst the people who observe the growth that God brings about in them. The testimony of God's redeeming work will make its way across the world. And the people who did not know Yahweh prior to seeing the works of his hands in the church will be able to look upon the people of God and testify to the truth saying, look what God has done. If you claim Jesus as your savior, you should be seeing some fruit like this in your life. It will not look exactly the same in every individual, but there will be some byproducts that will consistently begin to be seen in the lives of those who are truly experiencing the life-giving power of the gospel. What does it look like? It looks like a heart that now openly repents when it sins. Christians are not perfect people. Our Savior is perfect. And by His blood, we've been washed clean. But Christians bear the fruit of eager repentance. When we break the law of God, when we offend another, it is not a burden to us to go to them and repent and say, I, I made a mistake. Please forgive me. I've been forgiven much in Christ and I ask you to forgive me as well. And so repentance is a fruit of that truly transformed life. A genuine love for others is a fruit of that life. As he first loved us, now we want to love our neighbor, our brothers and sisters, those who are all around us. Forgiveness is a byproduct of that blessed gift that God has given. Just as God has forgiven us of our sins, We as Christians now should want to forgive one another for the things that they do against us. Endurance through hardships is one of those fruits. That we don't have to look at the challenges of life as devastating to us anymore for greater promises exist behind those struggles. We know that God uses all things to the good for those who love Him are called according to His purpose. And so the fruit of Christianity is also a willingness to endure through whatever hardships God puts in front of us. And the blessing of the church that God gives to us says that we don't have to endure through those things by ourselves. But we are supported within that, that we have friends around us that will care for us and pray for us and lift us up and use their fruitfulness to be a blessing to us. We have the sacred fruits of the Holy Spirit, that we are people of joy and gentleness and self-control and peace, that we are people that are living lives that are mimicking the life that Christ lived before us. And as he nears the end of this message, the prophet Hosea poses one last interesting question from the lips of God to the ears of his covenant people. He says, O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? And I love the phrasing of this. In some ways, I think it's, he's touching on a previous topic because in 
chapter 6, verse 4, he asked a similar question. He said, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim, O Judah? Their sin abounded. What shall I do with you? That rhetorical question had an answer, and that answer is the very salvation that we're talking about now. And now he asks, So Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? God himself has nothing to do with idols. They are of no importance to him. They are false gods. They are counterfeits. They have no true ability to bless the people who worship them. And so as his people, as the covenant people of God, reflect back upon the God that they are in covenant with, so too should they realize that they have nothing to do with idols. How can they continue to, to worship like the lost people of the world if God has given them such a clear picture of the truth? Covenant Israel, then, should have nothing to do with idols, and they don't need to seek false fruits from the false gods that entice them, for from Yahweh comes their fruit and provision. Any right productivity to display is a result of God working in and through them. Apart from their covenant God, Israel can do nothing. And so idols and false hopes offered by the devil, the flesh, and the world are obsolete in light of the fact that God is redeeming a people and making them fruitful for himself. What is the line of the song that we sing here from time to time? And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And as we have tasted of the goodness of God, those things that used to be our obsession, our addiction, our fixation, those things start to look like childish things. They don't have any real value to us like they did before. We're able to walk away from them because God has replaced them with the greater love of his son. Whoever is wise and discerning closes out this prophecy. May they understand the significance of what is being written here. Without a doubt, the northern kingdom were the first and primary recipients of this prophecy, but the prophecy was not written only for Hosea's contemporaries. Remember in the New Testament, we studied through 1 Corinthians a, a couple of years back. In chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, it says, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by destroyers. In two instances there, referring to the history of Israel. He says in verse 11, Now these things, that prophetic history of national Israel, happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So as we consider the book of Hosea, we don't just look back on it and say, wow, that was important for those people, but we don't have to think about it anymore. No, we look at those things today and realize that God teaches us through the history that we are now connected and grafted into. It is important that we see the northern kingdom of Israel, for in them we see a dangerous reflection of our natural selves. We see how easy it is for us to become so wrapped up in the blessings that God has given to us that we forget to cherish the Lord God who gives more than the gifts that come from his hands. But we see more than just Israel and their failings here. We see in the prophecy of Hosea the covenant God who loves us and his promises of redemption, a promise that has been graciously extended far beyond the limited reach of ethnic Israel. And what should our response be, people? The ways the Lord are right and the upright walk in them but transgressors stumble in them and so let us walk friends 
and the beauty of salvation that God has given to us as a free gift. Those whom he has redeemed, he has redeemed for his glory and for their good. And so let us glorify this wonderful God.